Now, I'm going to make a, a little promise to you, maybe a bit facetious, but I'm going to tell you this morning how you can have an absolute conflict-free life and how you can be at peace and uh, enjoy your relationships. Uh, some things you need to do. Number one, uh, never get married. <laughs> never have a family. Uh, number two, never, uh, never attend a school that, where people are different and ideas are debated. Uh, number three, um, don't get involved in sports. I mean, you, you don't want this competition stuff and where you have to try to, to win or, or work together as a team. You, just, you don't have to do that. Uh, never take a job where you have to work with people. And uh, never read about or get involved in anything in the political process. That's an absolute no-no. And perhaps in addition to that, don't look at the, just don't watch the news at all. And then last of all, never join a church. Now, obviously, it's a bit facetious, isn't it? Uh, it's impossible. We're, we are made for relationship. God is a relational God, and we're made for relationship, and he placed us together. Uh, but uh, not only do we, as Chuck Swindoll likes to say, not only do we need each other, we needle each other. And so it, it can be very difficult in relationships at every level. It's part of the fabric of relationship to have conflict. And we're not, are to cre- we're not to create conflict within the church, with any of our relationships. We're not to, to be dog-headed about things and create problems. But we are called to be a steward of the conflict and problems that come along. I've, just to give you a little, you, you've probably seen a box like this. Fragile, and then handle with care. If somebody gives you a box like that, and they say, I want you to take care of this, and here's where I want you to take it, please, please be careful. It's fragile. Now, we typically do not think of conflict as an opportunity for stewardship, but in reality, conflict is given to us by the Lord. He's allowed it to happen so that we can learn to forgive one another, accept one another, admonish one another, be patient with one another, and as 1 Peter chapter 4 says, to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. You see, the Lord knows us. And He's basically saying, take your relationships and the conflict that comes inevitably and handle it with care. And that's what I want to look at this morning out of Acts chapter 15. And it's interesting because this particular issue that was being debated in the church is exactly what John has been teaching out of Romans uh, on Sunday mornings for the last uh, year or more. And so it ties in, but it also gives us some ideas of how we can handle hard, difficult issues within a family, uh, within a church, uh, with fellow Christians. It's a little bit different in the workplace. Uh, these principles will apply there, but it applies most specifically to Christians. So uh, I want to, uh, as we look at Acts chapter 15, I want to give you a little, uh, a little context. Uh, first of all, let me give you the location. We're going to be reading about Antioch and about Jerusalem, two locations in the Middle East. This is Antioch, Syria. So uh, if you look on the map and uh, you see this area uh, where it says Syria and Damascus and then down below is Jerusalem, uh, just above the word Syria is Antioch. 
It's about 230 mile distance between the two. And, they, and so these are places where churches existed, a church in Antioch, and then the church in Jerusalem. That, Jerusalem was considered somewhat the mother church. The church in Jerusalem was primarily Jewish, had a 1,500, 2,000-year history of people that were part of the Jewish covenant, had the law, had uh, the, the right of circumcision in which the male members of the family had this physical right done on them as children, and they, they stood as representatives of the covenant for the whole family. This was deeply ingrained. The church in, at Antioch in Syria was primarily Gentile. It was a mixed, but it was primarily Gentile. And we're going to be including an area just north of that, just above where you see Cilicia, uh, which is uh, the area of Galatia, but it, uh, it also was primarily Gentile. Now, there had historically been a deep, deep rift between Jews and Gentiles. There was deep prejudice between the two groups, especially the Jews toward the Gentiles, the Jews believing themselves rightly to be God's covenant people, but they considered themselves more highly than they should. They considered themselves because God chose them, that they were just a notch better, or maybe more than a notch better than everybody else. So there was some deep ingrained, ingrained prejudice. If you think racial prejudice in our country is bad, it doesn't hold a candle to what it was like back then. So we need to know that. First 12 chapters of Acts deal primarily with Peter and James and John, Peter being the chief uh, figure, and then from 13 on it's primarily uh, the Apostle Paul and the growth of the churches around the world. Uh, but in this chapter, chapter 15, Peter is, is mentioned for the last time. So let's, let's just take it apart. And I want to look at the passage, look at the issue that was being battled, and then think about how they handled it and what we can learn from that about resolving conflict in our own, in our own lives and relationships. So if you have 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's begin in, uh, in, in verse 1 and understand this is the first missionary journey had taken place. Paul uh, had traveled throughout the area called Galatia, and he'd come back to the church at Antioch where he had been sent out to give a report of the good things that had happened, the number of Gentile people that had come to know Christ. And so that's the setting in verse 15. Uh, chapter 15, verse 1 says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren. They came to this church from Jerusalem, 230 miles north, and they had the opportunity to teach, and they taught, and this is what they taught. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, these were real mixed areas racially, describing the conversion of the Gentiles and it caused great joy for all the brethren. Verse 4, when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But, and I would circle that, that contrast, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, circle believed, these are believers, they were creating trouble, they were misusing and abusing the gospel, but they were believers, part of the church. Some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So here you have the conflict introduced. And the big issue is how does a person become a Christian? 
Is it by faith in Christ alone, as we've been looking at in Romans, or is it faith plus something else? For the Jewish teachers, these people that are Jewish Christians come from that background, they said, some of them, especially those of the sect of the Pharisees who are very strict in their uh, history among the Jewish people. Paul had been a Pharisee, remember. And they said, well, yes, you do have to believe in Christ, but it's important that you also be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Now, there was two strands that came out for that. It became a, a, uh, an abuse of the gospel that added works to salvation, and it also became an abuse that added uh, performance and the law to be a spiritual Christian. And so these are the, the things that are being dealt with, and this is in the early part of the church. Now, we may cast a longing eye on, on the church back in Acts. I've heard people over the years say, oh, if we could just get back to the church the way it was in the book of Acts. And they'll point to chapter 2 and how they, had, they were together and they, they had the apostles' doctrine. They had, were breaking bread together, having meals together. They sold everything, had everything in common. But even at that time, these people were considered uh, off-brand. They were, they were under persecution. They were being attacked. And then you get to Acts chapter 5 just a few, few months later, and you have Ananias and Sapphira. They're under great ju- discipline from the, uh, in, in the church. And then chapter 7, you have uh, Stephen, who is stoned for his faith. You have Acts chapter 6, uh, where they were having trouble getting along between two branches of Judaism, the Hellenists and the, and the Hebrews, Greek-speaking and Hebrew-speaking Jews. They, they were fighting with each other. Uh, so the early church wasn't the ideal setting that we think it is. But they had conflict, and they had to deal with it, just as there's conflict today. And the issue that was that raised its head then still raises its head today, doesn't it? But how do we deal with it? What, what kind of attitude are, do we have toward it? And so what you see here is that these teachers came from Jerusalem up to Antioch, and they began to teach that it's not only faith, but it's faith plus Faith plus the law, faith plus circumcision. And that's understandable because that was the background. They were bathed in this. They, they grew up in this, and they could not imagine a Gentile becoming a Christian without adopting Jewish practices. In other words, becoming a Jewish proselyte. And so they were seeing, rather than the church being something new that the Lord was doing, they were seeing Christians, Gentile Christians, becoming a subset of Judaism. And it says in verse 2 that there, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. This was, this was about to tear the church apart at that time. And if it was not handled in the right way, there'd be two early denominations and branches at that point. When it says no small dissension, it means that there, there was almost an insurrection. There was close to riot as they tried to to work through this issue. And so they determined that Paul and Barnabas and others should go to Jerusalem. You see, early in the church, there was already a a structure of leadership and authority. Uh, The the church originated in Jerusalem, and so they were were going to go back to, quote-unquote, the leadership of the mother church, so to speak. Not literally that way, but that's somewhat the way they looked at it. What could have happened right here is Paul and Barnabas and those with them could have said, hey, look, these folks in Jerusalem, they're just off base. And these people are speaking on behalf of the leadership in Jerusalem, and 
Uh, we can't have this. This is not the gospel. This is not what uh, we, we, we know to be true. And the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the, the law is fulfilled by Christ. He paid the debt for those who break the law, and, and, and salvation is a gift. And, and they could have gotten their haunches up, and they could have said, well, just fooey on the church at Jerusalem and took off their own way. But to their credit, and I think it was because of the, the people involved as well as the Lord's work, uh, they said, let's, let's go and talk this thing over. Let's work this thing out. Let's go back to Jerusalem. These people came from Jerusalem. Let's go. And so they did. Paul and Barnabas went. The church at Antioch sent people along as witnesses, along with Paul and Barnabas. And when they got there, they, they met. Notice it says they met with the elders, the apostles, and the church. So this involved the whole group, the leadership and the church. And it was at that setting, when they began to discuss it, that these people from the background of the Pharisees said, uh, no, 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 it, it cannot be just simple faith. Uh, it has to be keeping the law and being circumcised. And so, what do they do? That, that was the, uh, the basic conflict. John, if you'd place that up there. Uh, this, the first church council, basically. There have been a number of church councils dealing with big issues over the years. Uh, from uh, the Council of Chalcedon to Ephesus to uh, to Nicaea, dealing with the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the depravity of man, the divinity of the Holy Spirit. Church councils where they got together to work over issues, all the way to the Reformation. And so, but this was the first church council in essence, where the, that early church began to come together to deal with a central core issue: How does a person become a Christian? So how did they resolve this? Let's read the next portion. It's more lengthy, but let's read it so we can get the full story. Picking up in verse 6. It says, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider the matter, meaning they, 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 to intentionally deeply look into it. And when there, arose, when, there had been, when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said something. Now we're going to see three lines of testimony here, three different people, or uh, three different ideas or uh, being presented, all in agreement. Uh, but before that, notice it said there were there had been much dispute. There was conflict. And the word here, by the way, is different than uh, over in verse two, where it says no small dissension. That meant that they were just there on the brink of just getting out of hand. Whereas this church council, as they come together, the word dispute actually means to reason together. So they were thoroughly talking through this issue together, rather than just taking taking sides. And so first, Peter stands up. He says, by the way, there had been a lot of noise, a lot of discussion before Peter speaks, but now he speaks and he says, Men, brethren, you know that God, that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God who knows the heart, underline that, God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by what? By the law and circumcision and faith? Or by faith? By faith. Now, just so you'll understand, some of you may not be familiar with some of the background of Acts, but about well, several years earlier, it could be as much as ten years earlier, recorded in Acts chapter 10, Peter was shown a vision. If you remember, the sheet came down out of heaven. All kinds of animals were in it, both clean and unclean. And it specifically was to teach Peter 
Jews and Gentiles in this new uh, post-cross group of people, this organization that would be, be the church, Jew and Gentile together. They come to, they come to Christ the same way. They come to faith the same way. Through faith alone. And interestingly, when you look in chapter 10 of Acts, in fact, if you, if you want to turn over there, it, it's really quite funny. This was a, a sermon interrupted. You probably want to do that sometime yourself, don't you? Uh, if you, uh, Peter had been speaking for some time here explaining uh, to Cornelius, a Gentile military leader, about faith in Christ. And then it says in verse 44, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. Why were they astonished? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. They, they just, that just wasn't kosher. But that's what the Lord was doing, you see. So this is what Peter's referring to when he's giving his testimony here. That time when the Lord taught him to take down those racial, prejudicial barriers that would influence him even to add to the gospel. So he says, in, in going back to chapter 15, verse 10, it says, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. In other words, fellas, let's just be honest. We're, we're from the background of the law. We haven't even been able to keep that. So why are we putting that on the Gentiles? Verse 11, but we believe that Jesus, that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Now there's a little, a little subtlety here that you may not pick up on. Peter says to this group of people, and remember it's a mixed group now, those Pharisees who were saying you must have the law and you must have circumcision, they're part of this discussion too. They're believers, they're part of the church. He says, but we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we, the Jews, shall be saved the same as they. I thought the issue here was can the, can the Gentiles be saved like the, uh, like the Jewish people? See, he turns it on his head. He says... We're all come to, we all come, become a Christian, become a believer in the same way. It's by faith. It's by the grace of God. So that's the first testimony. Second testimony is much shorter, perhaps, but at least it is here. It's recorded in one verse. Verse 12 says, Then all the multitude kept silent. In other words, there was discussion after Peter. Now they, they're silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul. They declared how many miracles and wonders God had worked among them through, uh, worked through them among the Gentiles. So here you've got Paul and, and Barnabas saying, this is not our work. This is not our idea. This is not our message. This is something God has done and He's verified it by the miracles that He's performed and He's done marvelous things among the Gentile people in Syria and Cilicia and Galatia, all these places. And so that was round two. Testimony to then, after they had more discussion, it says in verse 13, after they had become silent. So there's more discussion, more debate, more dispute. And then finally a decision needed to be made, and so James evidently was, um, was the leader, and most historians believe that he was somewhat looked to as the leader. This is the half-brother of Christ, and he's in the church in Jerusalem, and he speaks on behalf of everybody after this thing has been thoroughly discussed 
and work through. And just a couple of points of, of information that might be of help to you here. Some may remember that in Galatians, Peter had, uh, had kind of tripped over himself about this issue of the law. Uh, he had come to the church at Antioch, and initially when he was there, he, he sat down and he had a meal with the Gentile people. And he didn't, he didn't, he didn't divide kosher and unkosher. See, he had had the experience in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius and the sheep. But at some point along the way, we're not sure whether it was before uh, the, the, the council at Jerusalem or after. But it is interesting that when these teachers from, Antioch, from Jerusalem came up to Antioch, it says Peter withdrew from the Gentiles and would not eat with them. He ate in a separate group with the Jewish people, and even Barnabas was drawn into that. And so this is all happening right close together. And then when you come to James, I understand that the book of James is one of the earliest books in the Bible written, somewhere around 48, 49, we believe. And interestingly, the book of Galatians is written about the same time. What's the message of Galatians? Salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone through grace alone. What's the message of James? It's important that those who are Christians demonstrate in their life good works, not to be saved, not to keep saved, but to express their faith. Both of these books were written right around the time this council took place. It's important for you to know that as you think about the full context of what's taking place here. So James begins to speak. And notice what he says, beginning in verse 13. After they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men, brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. In other words, Scripture agrees with this, even Old Testament Jewish Scripture. And he quotes from Amos, probably the Septuagint version, the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, saying, After this I will return, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, I will build, rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up. Why, was, why is he going to do that? This is pointing to a time future, we believe, in, in, in church history, a time future from us. Why is he going to do that? So that the rest of mankind, people other than Jewish people, may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. In other words, there's a time in the future where God's going to use Israel to do what he initially wanted them to do, to be a representative of God's forgiveness and grace to the Gentile people. Instead, they pulled themselves off as a separate group, considering them better than everybody else and demanding that everybody else, in order to have a relationship with God, come through the Jewish system and, and have to keep the laws that they even themselves hadn't been able to keep. And so he says in the future, I'm going to draw Israel back together and they're going to be that witness that the Gentile people will be drawn to. Verse 18, known to God from eternity are all his works. In other words, God, make, God makes known from His works from eternity. Or another way, I, I read this and I say, God knows what He's doing. He knows what He's doing here. And so He says, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those among us who are turning, uh, um, those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, from blood. For Moses had many, throughout gener many generations those who preach him in every city, being read 
in the synagogues every Sabbath. It says, the law is being promoted. That's not a problem. What we need to have is what we would call the gospel. Faith in Christ alone. So what was the result? If we put that slide up, John. Uh, how was this resolved? It says, then it pleased, the, notice, the apostles, the elders, the whole church to send chosen men of their own company back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And it, it's Judas and Bersabbas. Uh, Judas, who is called Bersabbas, and then Silas. They were leading men among them. In other words, just like the church at Antioch sent witnesses, so the church at Jerusalem sends witnesses. And they wrote this letter that Andy read earlier for our scripture reading. Now, let me just mention something to you. This may not mean much to you, but it does to me. Uh, I like history, and, and I'd love to have in my hands works of antiquity. I don't have any. But I do have a letter that my father sent to me when I turned 14, a card uh, that's something I've kept. I'm 69 now, and, and I've kept it all these years because it means so much for what, for what he said. And when I read this, I think this letter that I have in my hands is 1,970 years old at this point. What are we, what we are reading is a work of antiquity dealing with the very issue that keeps raising its head. And here's what James had to say as he wrote on behalf of the church at Jerusalem to the people at the church at Antioch. They wrote this letter by them. It says, the apostles, the elders, the brethren, the whole church in Jerusalem, to the brethren, the church, who are of the Gentiles, notice, in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such command, it seemed good to us, assembled with one accord, in agreement, after much dispute, we could say, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Referring to what Barnabas and Paul had been through, been through risking their lives to take the gospel to the Gentiles. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. In other words, we're giving you something written. We're also sending you people who will give verbal testimony to what we're saying. These people who claim to speak on our behalf did not come on our behalf. What they were speaking is not what we believe. They've, they've unsettled your souls. They've created doubts about your relationship with the Lord, giving you a different standard by which you can be certain of your faith and how to live and walk as a Christian. We gave them no such command. So we all we work through this thing and we're assembled with one accord. We're sending you this word to assure you to settle the issue. But then he says in verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. It says in verse 30 then, so when they came, when they were sent... I'm sorry. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, in other words, they gathered the church, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now, in this letter, you have this 
Jewish, primarily Jewish council that included some, uh, some Gentile believers as testimony and witness, and they're resolving a core issue in that day, an issue that almost tore the church apart. And how did they do it? They did it with discussion, coming to a decision, a unified decision, and then communicating that in a way that was as thorough as they could at the time. I find it interesting that that James adds the, the note in verse 28 and 29, things uh, it'd be good that you do these necessary things. Abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. You say, now hold on just a second. Doesn't it seem like he's saying, well, now uh, you're, you're saved through faith and, and, and you, you live your life by faith and the finished work of Christ, but it's also important you keep these other things. Is that what he's saying? Is he contradicting the thing he just wrote? Well, that wouldn't make sense. What's going on? Remember the context. You have these Jewish people that were part of, uh, of the church at Jerusalem that came out of this 1,500, 2,000-year history of being Jewish. And they were bringing some misunderstandings of the law into their Christianity, thinking that you have to keep the law to be saved when even Abraham, the progenitor, the origin of the Jewish faith, Romans tells us that, that he, he, he became a believer 500 years before the law ever came. And it was through faith, according to, to, to Genesis chapter 15, 15, 6. And then Galatians lets us know that the law, the purpose of the law was to bring us to Christ, to show us how far we should fall short, not how we need to live up to, because we can never live up to. We all fall short. We all sin. And because we're dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 says, there's not anything we can do to change our condition. We, we need a miracle. We need the work of Christ on our behalf that we just celebrated. And so, that's not what James is doing here, but... But he's speaking to some people, the, Jew, the Gentile people who came out of a life of paganism. Idol worship, sacrificing to idols, sexual immorality revolving around the idols. And this was absolutely anathema to the Jewish people. So you have two groups, two groups of people who have different backgrounds. And I believe that what James is doing here, it says it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit, believing they were led by the Lord, encouraging these Gentile believers it is through faith alone, but it's important not to be saved or keep yourself saved, but it's important to live a holy life and to understand that your actions and attitudes have impact on other people. And if you use your faith as a liberty to be involved in these things, you're, you're going to create greater risk between you and the Jewish people who see these things, as we all should, as unholy and wrong. So he's calling them actually to accountability, to holiness. And he wasn't afraid to do it. And, and the whole church was encouraged as a result of this. So, so what you have here is a, a very serious issue that could have torn the church apart. And they come together. They discuss it thoroughly. They come to a resolution and a unified agreement. And then they communicate it. And, and to me, it, it's, it's, a, it's an exciting and marvelous example of how hard, hard issues can be resolved. And I think there's something to learn there for a church as we deal with hard issues, as we even deal with this issue concerning faith and work. But also how we resolve issues within our families, with, with, within marriages, within uh, smaller groups of Christian people. 
So let me just share some applications for you as we close here in, in handling conflict as a good steward. Uh, there are two ways to, to respond to conflict. One adds to the tension, the other helps add to the solution. You can add to the tension by becoming defensive. When these issues come up, uh, you get very defensive. This is my issue. This is where I stand. This is what I believe. And you take it personally, and then you begin to fight against people rather than looking at it as an issue uh, that only the Lord is going to be able to give a clear and good and objective answer to. Domination, just stating, well, this is the way it is, and there's no discussion. I have a friend. Uh, I read a blog recently. I, he's a, a, a dear guy, but he, he has a real strong view on certain translations of Scripture. And he wrote on his blog, I'm not, I'm not writing this for discussion. I'm not writing this to get opinions. I'm telling you this is what's true. And then he goes on a long explanation of why what he believes about translations is true. And, and of course, nobody else should have anything to say about it. We can do that. We can just make pronouncements. Domination, that doesn't work. Avoidance. Uh, it's easy to avoid the issue. And some of us who do not like conflict, that's what we'd prefer. Some of you may have, especially some of you older folks, may remember Henny Youngman, a Jewish, uh, Jewish comedian of years past. And uh, he was happily married for 59 years, but he liked to, to tell some of these one-line jokes at the expense of his wife. And somebody once asked, how did you have such a, a, a happy marriage for 59 years? And he says, well, basically we made it a point to go out uh, two times a week, every week. We'd have a little dinner, a little soft music, some dancing, some candlelight. She'd go on Tuesdays, I'd go on Friday. <laughs> I would call that avoidance, wouldn't you? We, we, we can just walk around the issue. But that, that's not an answer. Over-analysis and, and never coming to a conclusion. But here are some things that I would just suggest to you. Real quick bullet points uh, for application in the end. If we want to add to the resolution and be good stewards of the conflict, first of all, involve the responsible people. This happened here in Jerusalem, didn't it? The responsible people were involved. They got together. Uh, it was, it was, they had to travel a long distance. It was not an easy thing. It, this was not like going to a conference on happy family life. This, this was tough. But they involved the, the, the people that were responsible, especially the leaders. They involved wise leadership. They got counsel. Didn't just try to do it on their own. By the way, in regard to if you hear somebody from another church talk about the church they used to attend or the church they do attend, please do not judge that church based on just one or two people's opinion. You, you really don't know the heart of what's going on there. Uh, the Jerusalem church could have done that, and, and it could have just been terrible. Uh, but be careful that you uh, involve responsible leadership, the people are involved, and be careful of, of rumor and Discussion that you and I should not be involved in. Thirdly, discuss the matter as respectfully and as humbly, as openly and as thoroughly as possible. I believe that took place here. You get that impression. They were, uh, they took a long time with this. We don't know the exact period of time, but it, w it was hard. But they talked about it. They did it with humility. They did it with openness. They did it frankly. They, they stood their ground, but they did it respectfully. And 
those that were listening, the leadership, evidently stayed quiet until it was time to make a decision or time for them to say something. That's the impression you get as you read through this. But then there comes a time when you just you have to decide on the matter at an appropriate time and manner and, and make the decision. They could have gone on discussing this, this issue ad infinitum, and it's still not resolved, so they did not get it fully resolved, but they dealt with the issue at the time, and they made the decision on the matter. James spoke on behalf of the whole group to the group and then wrote the letter that everybody else signed on to. And then they communicated that decision uh, as clearly as possible to all concerned. And that's a, that's a good thing to do, to make sure people understand to the degree that you can help them understand. And then, in the end, all of us are responsible to accept the decision with grace. doesn't mean you never discuss the, decision, the thing again, because, again, this battle over this issue is still being discussed today. But this sure gives us some idea of how we ought to handle issues like that, how we ought to handle tough issues within our families, within marriages, among Christians. The Lord intends that we be one people. His body was broken to make us one. His blood was shed so that we could be cleansed and freed. And we need to look at each other as brothers. And so some issues are vital to be fought for in this issue of salvation by faith alone and Christ alone by grace alone is one of them. But it must be done. It must be done with humility and with grace. Isn't it a contradiction to stand for grace in an ungracious manner? This doesn't make sense, does it? So if we're going to stand for grace, let's do it graciously. Let's do it firmly. Let's do it clearly. But let's do it graciously. Let me close with a thought that I received from Chuck Swindoll. Uh, he was writing on this passage, and, and he said this, No conflict is easy. We know that. All conflict can be beneficial if it's handled correctly, if we're good stewards of it. That's, that's the issue here, if it's handled with care. Because any conflict is fragile, isn't it? It, it, it can tear people and families apart. But if we're good stewards, that conflict actually can be beneficial. We can grow from it. And then he concludes by saying, any conflict calls for honest appraisal. And so... I'm sure that there's probably some tension in your life right now. There's some conflict with someone somewhere. If it's another believer, go back through this, read it, pray about these possible applications, and ask the Lord to guide you. And as we stand for the issue of salvation by faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone, let's do it humbly and graciously and firmly. And understand that some of those who are mixing up the gospel our people are not believers, they're false teachers. Others are believers or are perhaps confused. But if the Lord has accepted them through faith and He loves them, and in many cases may be using them, then we need to be careful how we speak to them and about them. Let's engage. Let's see if we can talk things over. Let's see if we can learn from each other. Let's see if we can get the issue clarified again as it was in that first church council. Let's pray. Father, we're delighted to have your word open before us, this ancient yet current manuscript, this truth from your heart. God breathes to us. Thank you, Father, for the evidence of its truth because of the resurrection of Christ, the fulfilled prophecy. Thank you for the practical truth that's given even as hard issues are dealt with. Thank you, Father, for these early leaders 
working through a hard problem and coming to a godly solution. Lord, may we be uh, informed and guided by what you've shown us here today. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.